0: This podcast contains explicit language.
1: Republicans are really moving their tax reform legislation. Does it have a chance of becoming law? We'll hear from HuffPost reporters Arthur Delaney and S. V. Date. This week, men continue to be disgusting, especially a Republican Senate candidate in Alabama. Marina Fang and Jen Bendry help answer whether this is the beginning of the end of men. And there's going to be a new chairman of the Federal Reserve, which could dramatically affect your life. Zach Carter and Daniel Marins explain. I'm Elise Foley, and this is So That Happened, the HuffPost Politics podcast about things that happened in politics. I'm Elise Foley, and I'm here with Arthur Delaney. Hello. And Sharish Dottay. Hey Elise. And we're about to talk about tax reform, the <laughs> most Yay! exciting topic there is. So
0: tax cuts.
1: Tax yeah. tax cuts, right? <laughs> Making all of us richer. Um so they're voting on Thursday in the House on their tax bill. Um help me understand. What's what's in this bill? How bad is it? Is it good? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> this- I think if you're rich or if you're a business, it's pretty great. It's a giant tax cut for businesses that costs a trillion dollars and a giant income tax cut that costs a trillion dollars, and since rich people pay the most income taxes, they get the most benefit. And then there's this other part of it, which is a simplification of the tax code that wipes out all these deductions and exemptions that are confusing but actually make people pay less taxes. And that's why they've had a political problem with the legislation, which is that they can't guarantee everyone gets a tax cut. And a lot of sort of middle to upper middle income people would probably get tax hikes under this legislation. So it's a, a real mixed bag, but it's it seems likely to sail through the House and this, the Senate could be where they have more trouble.
1: So the issue is just that it sounds really great to be like, let's get taxes to be super simple. But to get taxes to be super simple, you get rid of a bunch of the stuff that helps people pay less taxes.
0: Right. And the problem here is that people assume that all the loopholes out there, there there's so many, and and they're all for special interests. Well, the number one special interest is, do you have health care through your work? And if the answer is yes, then that's the biggest loophole. So do we want to get rid of that? Of course not. But the ones that they are going after affect a great number of middle class, uh, upper middle class, Lower middle class people, for example, the the deduction for state and local taxes, the deduction for home mortgage interest. So that's the problem here is, yeah, you could make taxes really simple. Just charge everyone a sales tax, and not have one, and it would be incredibly What if we aggressive. did 999? Yeah, right. <laughs> that would
1: yeah. be
2: like incredibly King.
3: simple,
0: yeah. It would be. And-, and do exactly the opposite of what the income tax was designed to do, which was to be a progressive tax, to take more from those who could afford it and less from those who couldn't.
2: The reason they wound up with this sort of complicated bill that doesn't necessarily cut everybody's taxes is because of their priorities, because the main thing they wanted to do was reduce taxes on corporations, because they have this pretty much false talking point that (laughs) corporations pay the highest taxes in the world. And so that's what they started with. And then they they moved on from there and realized they're losing so much money in lost revenue that they've got to put a lot of it back. And the simplification, while it does simplify the tax code to take away all these deductions and exemptions, it also actually raises a ton of money. And that's money right. they need because they set themselves a $1.5 trillion limit on how much revenue they could lose. And their bills meet that. By taking away these deductions, and, and the House bill has some real uh, uh, tough ones. It gets rid of a deduction for extreme medical expenses. If like ten percent of your income or more, you have to spend on medical expenses, you, 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 you know, right now you can deduct that from what you owe in taxes. Under this bill, you couldn't. There's also a thing on adoption expenses right. and moving expenses. It's like they were going through couch cushions. Looking for things that they could use to pay for the other parts of the bill. And they're upfront about that. I talked to Congressman Mike Kelly on Wednesday and I said, Why are you getting rid of this special uh, tax exempt bond that helps uh, developers build low income housing? And he was like, Well, you know, a lot of stuff got put into the tax code over the years that helped specific people. And, you know, we want lower tax rates now. So, We've got to look at some of this stuff and say it's got to go. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, the, the, and the other reason the House will has voted for this, is presumably, and supported it with enough votes to get it through is they know it's not real. They know that the Senate's going to do their own bill, and then afterward, they're going to come into conference, and that's where the actual piece of legislation that eventually will do or not do, and either be approved or not, will be cooked up. We,
2: we, yeah, we're talking—we're assuming— we're, we should just be upfront that we're recording this before the House vote occurred, but we assume that it passed.
1: Right. But we still don't know. Yeah. I guess we technically don't know what is happening with the House bill either, but we don't know what's going to happen with the Senate bill, right? They're, they're not uh, quite as certain as the House.
2: Yeah. Oh, totally not. I think it's important to remember at moments where it seems like the tax reform has a lot of momentum that the ultimate outcome is totally uncertain. On this podcast in the past, I have Boldly predicted that they won't get this done. and I'm, Are you going to do it today? I boldly predict that this will still flop. I have to. Be- I have
1: to. Yeah, you need to be consistent.
2: Well, they've got – No, he no, doesn't. They don't have the votes in the Senate at this point.
1: Right. They've lost some – at least one well, Republican. They,
2: well, they've only officially lost one guy as of – Thursday morning. And that's Ron Johnson. But the they, Senator can, from they, they can Wisconsin. just
0: what he wants is is more tax cuts for the sorts of businesses that aren't getting them right now. Come on, you don't think they'll do that? I mean Of course they will. And they'll get his vote back. I mean he said he was against the health care repeal before and he ended up voting for
2: it. Right. He he's upset with the way they structured this giant tax cut for so called small businesses. Uh it's small business income that is reported on right. individual returns. And yeah, you know, he could be just doing that. In order to get what he wants out of leadership, and it's the leaders that appear to be driving the policy here. Um, but it's this, it's the same deal as with health reform. They may seem close, but you know the fact was during that whole health care debate a couple months ago, they never had the votes. Like it was the status quo all along. And, and so what
1: it- about putting um, the Obamacare? Aspects into the Senate bill. Does that uh, m- mean that it's more likely to sink it in yes. the Senate? Yeah.
2: I was really surprised they did that, and they they said they did that because they needed the money, because their provision to eliminate the penalty for the uh, individual mandate to buy insurance in Obamacare that raises like three hundred billion dollars, and then they use that to make the tax cuts in the Senate version of the bill a little more generous. But it just brings the entire problem they had with health care into the tax debate. Right. And But they could just as easily take it back out. So let's not
0: you know, assume that that's going to be the thing that ends up sinking the bill because they could remove it. And then it's a candy for everyone bill if they choose to do away with some of these uh,
1: deduction eliminations. So why did they put it in the Senate bill but not in the House bill? Seems like usually the House is— uh... Raring to go on that type of thing. That,
2: that's a good question. You know, it's. It, I think it was always out there as an idea, and I, the, I think the House leaders wisely omitted it because they didn't see how it could be helpful. And I'm not exactly sure what's the the real reason they decided to put it in in the Senate. I think it is possible, like Sharice just said, that it's it, it's a gambit, and they could then take it out and make the bill falsely seem all the more reasonable. But it's important to know that these House guys are happy with the Senate bill. Talking to them this week, even though it's totally different from theirs, they're like, ah, fine. Because there's, I think, unlike with healthcare, and this is the wild card in my view, there is more desperation on the part of all Republicans to have achieved something.
1: Right, they need to. Right. They have failed at so many things so far that they, <laughs> they want just this one thing.
2: Yeah, and th- this is not even analysis. They they've actually nominations, of, right? They they actually say this. Like we haven't done anything, yeah. and our voters and our donors will hate us. Our donors want their tax cuts. They openly, they openly say that.
1: that.
0: But Arthur, I think this is something that you and I have disagreed on. Is is healthcare was hard because they were actively taking something away from many of their voters, health care, right. right? the opportunity to buy subsidized health insurance. Here, after they get done with pretending they're going to be revenue neutral or within a $1.5 trillion or whatever it is, and they just cook up whatever number they want to cook up, it's a tax cut. It almost never doesn't pass. I'm, I'm trying to remember the last time there was a major tax cut effort, not a tax reform, but a tax cut that did not pass
2: Congress. It's a comparable amount of people, though, who could get tax hikes- under this bill, but as who would have been that. affected by the health care. Right,
0: but they can change that so that they no longer are looking through the
2: couch cushions and then
0: everyone gets a tax cut. That'll be the easiest thing for them to do right in time for Christmas because we say that now, not happy holidays. Right? So, well, so
1: they do a second bill or they. Same
2: bill, they just change it. Same bill and then change it. And then, in it. In the magic and then add right.
1: everything back in that they of took you out. You know what? This,
2: well, this, is, this yeah. is honestly. The crucial point for following the tax thing, because there's a bill in the house and the bill in the senate. Yeah, yeah, they could both pass, and then that's neither one of those is going to be the thing, the final outcome if they succeed, because in you know a bill can only become a law if both chambers pass the same bill. So what would occur is like Trisha said, a conference committee, which is basically where. Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan would decide (laughs) between each other. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, you know, some of this stuff was stupid. We had to give this to so and so, but I I think that the conference report will actually be pretty. There will be a lot of political difficulty in getting that through the House. Well, there is
0: one other possibility here: is that the Senate could end up producing what they decide is their last offer, pass it, and go home in mid-December. I mean, they've done that in the past on other bills. So we should Just not, jam the house, of course, be. and the house would take it because they're going to say, uh, "What we're going to refuse tax cuts." I, I, so th- there is that possibility. It's happened before. The Senate tends to do that. The House tends to complain and go along. So we'll see.
1: So it sounds like you think, Sharish, that this is going to happen.
0: Oh, they'll pass something that they can claim to be massive tax cuts, whether it is, and it'll go or into not. law. It'll go into law at the start of the year. They might, they might even put a provision in there that lets them. Uh, front-load some of the savings by sending people checks right right in time for the Republican primaries to start.
2: So. Well, they I mean, the Senate bill, and this is what would have to get through the House, too, ultimately. There, so there's a rule in the Senate. You cannot have this legislation add to the deficit in its 11th year after it's enacted. So there's a they have a 10-year budget window where they typically score the revenue effects of something. And then the rule is outside of that window, it can't add to the deficit. And it the it, the House version did, and the initial Senate version did. Their their Joint Committee on Taxation that keeps this score said, yeah, that's that's not going to fly. It's adding like a hundred billion dollars to the deficit in the eleventh year. So what the Senate did this week is just said, you know what? All these individual income tax cuts expire in twenty twenty five, and poof. <laughs> the the eleventh year de- deficit just disappears,
0: right? Which is exactly what they did with the George W. Bush tax cuts. Remember, right? They they sunset it after ten years, because
2: most of these guys will be gone and lobbyists anyway. So what do they care? And the and the, <laughs> and the House guys don't even they care. They get more
1: money to go back and exactly. lobby for <laughs> the next time. I,
2: I asked uh, uh, Freedom Caucus guys like Mark Meadows. Doesn't that bother you that all the individual income tax cuts are temporary in the Senate bill? I'm like, nah. Because, you know, a future Congress won't let those expire.
1: Yeah, it's always like, we'll fix it later. Don't worry about it.
2: But, you know, it's and that was largely true with the Bush tax cuts, except a few things did expire. Their repeal of the estate tax expired. Their uh, lower rate for capital gains expired.
0: But that was because that was Barack Obama was president, right? Let's not forget that. Then because he, he was willing to keep all that exactly. stuff. He was going to say, fine, we'll have no... Tax cuts going forward, unless you go with the plan that I want, which is to maintain the ones for the the middle class and lower class, and and uh, you know,
2: let the upper end ones. Come Pre- back. President Elizabeth Warren would certainly be just like buy, buy tax cuts. That's true, but what would President Mike Pence do? So right.
0: you know, uh, there is that whole question of long term debt, but no one seems to care about that anymore. So why should we?
1: Got it. Um- <laughs> <laughs> So I guess I am, am going to guess. We've got one guess that it will, one guess that it won't.
2: Yeah, please tie break. Uh,
1: <laughs> I feel like a lot of things have been going down lately.
2: Yes. Failing lately. I'll, ah, I'll say it'll fail. In your face.
0: Oh, oh I'm so well, I'll burned. Have, we'll Where's have another... my cold compress? Oh,
1: Well, if you're right, then you'll get a check, maybe, in the mail.
2: Yeah, if you're right, you'll get (laughs) a check.
1: From the government.
0: government. You guys will, too. What is this? Why are we predicting anything? That's insane. We're honestly
2: in the strike zone for tax hikes, because we live in a uh, high-tax, high-income metropolitan area. So we'll be totally screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway.
1: Um, All right. Well, thank you, guys. I think maybe I understand it better. I hope listeners do, too.
2: Thank you. Take care.
1: Before we get back to the show, do you want more audio news from HuffPost? If you have an Amazon Echo device, check out our daily flash briefing, 90 Seconds with HuffPost, to hear the top stories of the day every day. And we're back. This is Elise Foley, and I'm here with Marina Fang and Jen Bendry. Uh, here to talk about Rory Moore. So we've been having constant updates on this. Uh, This is the Senate Republican candidate um, in Alabama, and he is up for election uh, on December 12th. And he has allegedly uh, sexually assaulted um, a 14-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 28-year-old, and lurked around the mall and asked out a lot of... uh, teenagers and young women and creeped out a bunch of people. This is all allegedly. Um, He's denied all of it, but it's turning into this big mess for Republicans, um, including the president, over how do they handle this guy that won't drop out. So, Marina, uh, he's basically following sort of what Trump has done, right? Just deny, deny, deny. Right. And also saying this is just A total
4: conspiracy against him and what a
1: conspiracy right (laughs) the planning involved would be yeah
4: and all of these people um yeah i mean he has threatened to sue the washington post which first broke the story which is of course a tactic that donald trump has often used um and he's he of course has blamed the media he hasn't actually said fake news i don't think but You know, the idea is the same. It's been kind of unreal. It's been a really unreal week.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so in terms of Trump's response, he personally hasn't, as of Thursday morning, said anything. The White House put out a statement and sort of said that, you know, this would be very bad if true, but we can't you know convict somebody off of allegations. But that was last Friday.
4: And of course, as we know, there have been so many more developments since then. And including all of these other women coming forward. Um, And that was from Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, not Trump himself. Trump, during his Asia trip, made some brief comments saying, oh, I need to look at this more. He also said that, quote, I don't watch TV, which, of course, we know is not true.
1: (laughs) This was in The Washington Post, so he could just read about it. Yeah. Um, And he
4: yeah he basically shrugged it off as like oh i'm i've been busy i'm on this asia trip i haven't been paying attention but he's back now and he has twice ignored reporter questions about roy moore including during his very weird uh bizarre trip recap he <laughs> on wednesday he had a previously unscheduled speech where he just basically gave this kind of presentation, kind of like when, you know, a family member comes back from vacation and is like, here's all the cool stuff I did on my vacation. He basically did that. He
1: didn't have a slideshow photo, right? Right. But he
4: he did just kind of, it was like almost a day by day rundown of like, I was in China and here's what I did. I was in Vietnam and here's what I did. And he did this whole event. And then at the end, of course, reporters asked about Roy Moore and he just walked away.
1: Yeah. Well, so Senate Republicans, right? Uh, they've had a harder time getting to run away from the questions. So, Jen, you were there this week, pestering them. What was, what was that like? What, how are they dealing with this?
5: So, their general response has gone to has gone from, if these are true allegations, then he must go, to something happened overnight, and then they started saying he must go. We believe these women that they're all right. So, there's clearly. Like an orchestrated effort to lead all of their messaging on this, which is sort of sad because it's right. <laughs> we're talking about multiple allegations. I know it's not a courtroom. This is not you know guilt you know innocent until proven guilty that black and white. But they're literally like all of their talking points changed one day, and they all decided it was time to push more out. And so, well, because
1: they don't. A lot of them don't like him anyway, right? They right. they're not really dying. They want another Republican, but they're not dying to have Roy Moore.
5: No, and it, that's another piece of this, is it's very clear that that none of them really want him around anyway, because aside from all these allegations, he's got a pretty crazy record. I mean, this is the guy who was a uh, a justice uh, on the Alabama Supreme Court who got thrown off the court twice, twice, for not abiding by federal laws. I mean, that's <laughs> insane. And now he's running for Senate and will probably win. So, um, and he's also said things like homosexuality should be illegal. It's like bestiality. Muslims shouldn't serve in Congress. Yeah. I mean, this guy's a real loose cannon and very Trumpian in that way. So he is sort of like this like other version of Trump, in playing by the same playbook, just Steve denying Bannon everything. Playbook. Yeah, Bannon's right. been supporting him. Yep. Um, but one of the more awkward uh, pieces of this for Republicans is they denounce Roy Moore and say they believe his accusers – is that they can't seem to explain why that doesn't apply to Trump's accusers. And that's sort of hanging over all of this, too, because they're, they keep saying, we believe the women, we believe the women. That that was a quote from Mitch McConnell. I believe the women. But this is the same guy who won't He's talk really about— He's really woke
1: now. Yeah, he
5: woke up <laughs> this week. Um, so there's that's another piece of it, too, this like overall like cloud hanging over of, um, the issue of sexual harassment and, and assault and, and Trump— um, being a central figure in it, so it 's just really messy and and doesn 't look good for for really anybody in the republican party
1: so right. and that want- makes
5: that makes it awkward for Trump too,
4: because clearly his conspicuous silence about this you know the whole his whole history is hanging over this as well,
1: yeah so They would like him to or most Senate Republicans, right, would like him to just step down and they could mount some sort of write in campaign. They can't get his name off the ballot at this point, but they could have somebody else. But at this point, it doesn't look like he is going to do that. He's been super, super defiant. So what do they what do they do once they get their new buddy Roy Moore in the Senate?
5: Well, they have they have a couple of options, um, and and it's kind of funny to me that Mitch McConnell is is openly talking about all their options for getting rid of a guy who is about to p- probably win a race and get elected to the Senate. I mean, right. that's, there's
1: something kind of weird about saying that you know we don't really care what Alabama voters yeah, decide. It's very weird. We'll we don't want it, so we'll overrule it. That's I mean, that's not strange. how elections work. Yeah. And
5: imagine yeah. if this was a Democrat, for example, that. You know, Democrats were trying to do this with a, a, you know, a controversial Democratic Senate candidate. And they were like, oh, we're going to we're going to try to force this guy out of the race and and deny him a seat. And that's not how it works. So that's that's a, another piece of this that is pretty crazy. Um, but one thing they've floated is they've tried to ask Luther Strange, who's the current Alabama senator in the seat, to resign because this race is a special election to fill Luther Strange's seat. And uh, if he resigns, that resets the clock for when they would have the next special election, which would push back the time, which would give them more time to figure out a better nominee that they like. Um, That's not going to happen. Another option is that, uh, you know, Luther or um, Roy Moore wins his race. He comes to the Senate and he is immediately hit with an ethics violation And he is up for an expulsion vote, which means two-thirds of the Senate um, would have to vote to kick him out. Um, A couple of senators have expressed support for that, right? Like Cory Gardner.
4: uh, Mitch McConnell. Oh, right. Yeah. The
5: the majority leader. I mean, they're talking openly about their options for denying, you know, an elected official a seat. So, um, but the expulsion idea is also kind of crazy because... The last time a senator was expelled uh, from the chamber was in 1862 for aiding the Confederacy in the Civil War. Um, Before that, it was 1797, and it was someone expelled for treason. So this is a very, very uncommon practice. Uh, At least it doesn't happen very much where it works because you have to get a two-thirds vote to kick out a senator. And there have been other people who were – You know, up for expulsion, but they couldn't the Senate couldn't get a two thirds vote to kick them out. So there's all these details that are just firsts or just extremely rare that are happening in the Senate right now. And the reality is, uh, it it sure looks to me like Roy Moore is going to win this race and come to the Senate.
1: (laughs) Woohoo. Um, so what about, we We haven't really talked about his opponent at all. Um, I, this is giving him potentially some level of a boost, right? But uh, this is Doug Jones, the Democrat. Uh, but it's such an uphill battle in Alabama. Right. If they can get some level of increased turnout from Democrats, they might be able to pull it off um, and get Republicans to stay home yeah. if they hate Roy Moore. But uh, otherwise, it's kind of... Alabama is going to vote for a Republican, typically. Yeah, and I just don't think... I mean, I keep thinking back to Trump. Like,
4: that, you know, his whole history of sexual misconduct and the Access Hollywood tape, like, that didn't seem to make a difference for a lot of just, you know, mainstream Republican voters because they just wanted a Republican in the White House. And they were able to just overlook... All of that, and I think that probably will happen here. I mean, clearly, like we've seen how Republicans don't like Roy Moore, but they want to keep that seat, and so they're they might just be willing to miss just to disregard all of this again,
1: yeah, like we saw the same thing happen a year ago with, uh, you know, what, what will this say to, I'm a father of daughters. What will this say to young women to elect somebody after he makes these, uh, gross remarks? At the very least, we know that Trump, you know, said the things that he said. Yeah. Um, and he went ahead and won anyway. So I'm kind of inclined to agree that it's, uh, not looking likely, you know, I think a lot of people say that they care a lot about, um. What these things say to women, but I think also you maybe don't, they don't care that much about it this is this is <laughs> our an happy aside. all women segment,
4: yeah, this is an aside, but like you don't need to cite your daughters in showing that you respect women, yeah, that's our p s a yeah, you don't and everybody you don't need has to,
1: a mom, right <laughs> <laughs> don't need to note it um all right, well, <laughs> we will I'm sure have way more updates on this. We've got a few more weeks to go. Um, But thank you guys both for coming in and talking about it.
5: Thank you. A pleasure as always.
2: back this is arthur delaney i'm joined in studio by my colleague daniel marins hey arthur hi and we're also joined through the magic of technology by the disembodied voice of zach carter zach where are you in the ether that's amazing so the federal reserve is going to have a new chairman uh dear listener i must apologize this occurred last week when president trump nominated this new person and we are a podcast that respects the you know, your time and the temporal relationship of things. But the nominee has not been confirmed, so it's a a going concern. Daniel, who is this person that Donald Trump wants to put in charge of monetary policy?
6: Well, he's sort of this consummate veteran Fed official and before that banker and then veteran of the, uh, of the, I guess, H.W. Bush administration going back a ways, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, you know, he, he... he was sort of he was appointed by obama to the fed board of governors so he was a republican who huh. was appointed by obama obama was thinking maybe if i appoint two fed governors one's a democrat one's a republican i'll get more help classic obama thinking it actually did kind of work in this particular case and he's basically been known as a pretty reliable vote for chair yellen in the sense that he's never publicly voted against the the consensus in terms of keeping interest rates low or gradually raising them as the case may be but in private apparently he's been a dissenter and he breaks with her on in supporting slightly more financial deregulation okay so it sounds like something of a status quo choice it doesn't sound weird or trumpy well he- <laughs> here's the thing. It doesn't sound like campaign trail Trump, but it does sound a whole lot like Goldman Sachs cabinet Trump. Okay. Plutocrat Trump. Right. The ideological right wing had ideas about, about who, who should be picked for this post that did not jibe very well with sort of the business community. They were talking about people like John Taylor like others who would have insti- – and these are people that were supported by people like Mike Pence who would have instituted a kind of a rule, for example, insisting that interest rates uh, be, be jacked up to, to certain levels and, and, and constraining the Fed's flexibility. All right, let's, now, Wall Street doesn't like that, but progressives don't like that either.
2: The, Zach Carter, what does the Federal Reserve do – and why does it matter who's in charge?
3: Well, the Federal Reserve is probably the most powerful economic policy agency in the world. Uh, it's basically responsible for uh, the creation and regulation of money. And in the global economy, the dollar is by far the most important currency. Uh, it's, it's the reserve currency for other central banks and other countries around the world. Uh, and if you want to make a big change in, in the economy, uh, changing the value of money or the amount of money in circulation uh, is a pretty powerful tool that you have at your disposal um, to do that. And, and they, they do this by regulating in interest rates, which Daniel was alluding to earlier. Um, you know, high interest rates, you know, anybody who's, who's taken on a mortgage or, or a credit card before, you know, high interest rates uh, don't make you so excited about taking on debt. They make you less likely to borrow money because it's much more expensive low interest rates. Uh, they tend to fuel commerce because companies are more interested in investing uh, when they can borrow money at, at low rates. So uh, you know, they, they use interest rates to sort of affect the growth of uh, the overall economy, uh, the growth of wages, uh, and the growth of unemployment. Uh, these things are often in, uh, in tension with each other, in conflict with each other. Low rates tend to mean uh, you know less unemployment, uh, but they can lead to more inflation over time under certain circumstances. And some of the people that Daniel was talking about there, people like John Taylor, uh, there's a very old kind of movement in conservative economics which views inflation as this uh, sort of uh, the deepest evil that you can really have in in economic policy that – that you want to manage the economy so that you make sure that the value of the dollar stays constant at all times, and this is something that tends to benefit wealthy people who own lots of dollars uh, and and it 's not a bad idea it 's just it only becomes a problem when uh, it conflicts with unemployment policy uh, when you know a couple percentage percentage points of inflation not such a big deal if you can get uh, you know a few million people back to work
2: now the federal Reserve. I believe it exists specifically because having the the currency at a a fixed value caused a lot of hardship to poor people like farmers (laughs) more than 100 years ago. That's right. Uh, Because you would have deflation, which would make it impossible to pay off debt.
3: Right. If you don't expand the the money supply when the economy grows, then there's not enough money to go around, and you know you you don't have money that can that can get into people's pockets for you know for, for new work for to, to to do to do jobs essentially. And so if you restrict the money supply and you you deflate the currency, essentially increase the value of the dollar, uh, there are fewer dollars to go around, and that can be really problematic.
2: So if there so
3: inflation. Is, I think people learn that
2: inflation is bad because it, it, it makes you think of items costing more and your money being worth less. But actually, inflation is a power for good for people who borrow money and for its effect on
3: unemployment. So long as it doesn't get out of control, right? I mean, yeah. we are afraid of things like the Weimar Republic in 1923, where, you know, uh, the value of a Deutsche Mark goes from like $1 to like one trillionth of a dollar. I mean, those things are, are, are pretty bad. But in a modern economy that's not tied to the gold standard, that type of hyperinflation is nearly impossible to engineer. Uh, something much more controlled, like, you know, one or two percent is what the Fed has been going for recently. And there are conservative economists who think one or two percent is too much.
2: Now, Daniel Marins, you have covered this- this more closely than most reporters the the fight over what the fed has been doing for the last 2 years with interest rates and inflation because it after the great recession they basically put it at 0 and said the economy sucks so bad we need a little. We need to allow a little more inflation to happen. We don't want to raise rates and crush poor people. They,
6: they, they put it at what's known as the zero lower bound, which is actually just a range of zero to zero point two five percent. And the way this all works is that the Fed holds the reserves of banks uh, that banks need to hold in order to keep like sort of a minimum balance on their books. And banks lend to each other overnight to make sure that they have that balance in the morning, and, and they do it through their regional Fed. And that regional Fed regulates through this key interest rate, the federal funds rate, the 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 rates that banks uh, lend to each other at through that overnight process. So, super complicated, but it then has this whole uh, spread out rip, ripple effect throughout the rest of the uh, lending rates throughout the rest of the economy, because banks use it as a baseline. Now, yeah, when the economy bottomed out in December 2008, the Fed tried everything that they could do to say, we're going to make uh, borrowing and lending cheaper at a time when the banks are squeezed, when households are are up to their eyeballs in debt, when unemployment is rising. And they kept it there for an unprecedentedly long amount of time. And so sometimes what you hear from these these hawks, maybe, I don't know if it unprecedented, but certainly historically, extremely long period of time, seven or eight years, they didn't raise it at all. It was at between 0 and 0.25%. That means that banks are making less money in terms of the interest they charge on borrowers. But at the same time, inflation hasn't even approached their 2% target. And so essentially what you have right now is you've kind of got three main camps when it comes to the role that the fed should be playing oh, in the I economy. I like where this is going three camps okay yes so you've got progressive the progressive economists and activists that the, there was a coalition that came together some three years ago to say, you know what, this is a body that progressives aren't interested in at all, and we basically have ceded this turf to the right wing and to Wall Street, which are not necessarily the same thing. And what we're going to do is say, the Fed's got a dual mandate to maximize employment and to keep inflation in check. But over time, it has emphasized far too much, especially in reaction to the runaway inflation of the 70s, uh, keeping inflation in check, to the point where it's sort of uh, allowing itself to be bullied by these right wingers who would basically have us rather remain in a recession just to keep inflation. The away.
2: Federal Reserve, in fact, causes recessions or can cause a recession by raising interest rates and, and hurting economic growth. Yes,
6: I would say the last time it, it really, really, truly did that was the late '70s, early '80s. But, but fine. Okay. Uh, but, but again, they're basically saying no. They they, 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 even thought that Janet Yellen was raising rates too quickly. That they look at this economy and say that wage that there's not enough competition for workers yet. That for wages to grow across the board, the the, the Fed up campaign campaign represent a lot of low-income workers in cities. And they made this an issue. They had meetings with Janet Yellen. They had meetings with people like Neil Kashkari, the Minneapolis Fed president. and And they really did change the debate and put this on the progressive radar as an activism issue. Then you've got sort of the right wing, which really wants, again, thinks that any, any sort of manipulation of the money supply to counter economic cycles is basically uh, sort of sinful. It's, it's almost a religious faith the, the way even Zach was describing it because it doesn't really make sense. I mean it, we, we would never have recovered from our current situation at all. Uh if 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 it weren't for uh the Fed and especially because Congress was was sort of imposing fiscal austerity. So if we hadn't had the Fed, we really would have been screwed. And then there's kind of this middle camp, and that's Wall Street. And it's and the Wall Street wings of the Democratic and Republican Party. And they basically say, look, if we have our druthers, we want to be able to to charge borrowers more interest. But at the same time, we can't let the economy tank, and they understand how important it w- the Fed was toward the recovery. So they respect kind of the fundamental role of the Fed, but they would they would they would turn off the gas and put on the brakes sooner than the let's say the left and the pro-worker crowd would want.
2: And Zach Carter, I think the the new Fed chairman Jerome Powell comes from this uh, sort of Wall Street camp that Daniel Marin has described. Where do you see things going with monetary policy? It's you know in his public statements he sounds like Janet Yellen, but as Daniel Marron said, he's also privately been a dissenter. Do you do you think that it's likely the, the Federal Reserve would rock the boat at this point?
3: No, I think it's very unlikely. I, I think you'll you'll see Jerome Powell uh, really focus on uh, continuity with Janet Yellen's uh, set of policies. He has publicly supported them. I think you'll see very gradual increases in uh, in the interest rates over the next couple of years. I, I think Daniel's point there that, you know, Wall Street uh, would rather make a billion dollars, you know, two percentage points at a time than lose money in a recession. Uh, they're not... They're sometimes stupid, but they're, they're not stupid about things as basic as this. Um, and And look, money is money is not something that's scarce. Uh, the Federal Reserve can just can just print it. Um, and when they print it and give it to Wall Street, that's usually good. For Wall Street, um, the you know the broader macro policy questions are you know is that the best way to boost the economy and and you know, the ultimate answer is that no, it's not the best way to boost the economy, but it's not the worst either. Uh, and when you, you essentially have the Congress abdicating its role as uh, as a fiscal policy engine or actively doing harm through austerity policy, uh, you, you need something like the Fed to, to at least be willing to spend the money to keep the economy going. We we tend to demonize government spending in the United States. Uh, but economic activity is just spending of money. That, that's what it is. If you don't spend money, the economy is falling apart. Uh, so you, you want someone to go out there and, and actually be able to do stuff and have the money to do it. So I, I don't think I don't think he's going to be a particularly radical figure. Uh, but that said, you know neither was Janet Yellen. Uh, nobody has really been using the Fed uh, exploiting its political potential to do to do a lot of great good for for workers over the past you know 30 years. So, I was surprised
2: that President Donald Trump, who is a big meddler and a fusser, didn't want to just stick with Yellen uh, because there's a lot, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is sort of independent, but its governors and its chairman are appointed by the president. And there can be a lot of political pressure from the president on the Fed in order to keep interest rates low, like Janet Yellen essentially had been doing, in order to. Keep the economy healthy and make conditions favorable for re-election. So it was. It was a little surprising to me that,
3: I you know, that I'm, Trump I, wanted to make a change. I'm actually very critical of this idea of um, the political indefe- independence of of the Fed. That's that's not something that's necessarily a popular position among progressives. But uh, but you know the. The Federal Reserve is a political institution. Um, it it's, it needs to be accountable to somebody, and I think a, a big worry from progressives is that if if the Fed is accountable to people like Donald Trump or to Congress, where people like Ted Cruz who have advocated the gold standard and various other you know kind of crackpot nineteenth century economic ideas, um, the Fed won't be able to answer to the sort of Wall Street, uh, you know, middle ground people they've been answering to and will instead answer to a bunch of crackpots. Uh, And that is dangerous. Uh, But I think the solution for that is 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 winning elections. So, um, you know, it it, it, I think people there were some people who were worried that that Jerome Powell was selected because uh, Donald Trump felt like he would be able to to bully him. Uh, But let's think about what that means. Uh, Donald Trump would be able to bully him into lowering interest rates and reducing unemployment. Is that is that really such a bad thing? Uh, you know, people talk about uh, politicians manipulating the Fed to win elections. Well, you know, that that does happen sometimes. I mean, it happened in the 1970s under Richard Nixon. Uh, and and we know that uh, LBJ, for instance, uh, was able to essentially bully the Fed into lowering interest rates to make it easier to finance the war in Vietnam and the Great Society. Uh you know, I think that those problems are basically insoluble. They're they're built into the democratic process. And and you have to work them out through uh, democratic accountability, which means winning elections. Uh, so if, if you don't want people like Jerome Powell to run the Fed and do the bidding of Donald Trump, don't elect Donald Trump president.
2: All right, Zach Carter, Daniel Marins, thanks for talking about the Federal Reserve.
3: It's one of my favorite things to do.
2: We'll, we'll be back later. Bye.
1: So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. I'm Elise Foley, and this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Arthur Delaney, SV Date, Marina Fang, Jennifer Bendery, Zach Carter, and Daniel Marins. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to sothathappened@huffpost.com. at huffpost.com. And if you want more audio news from HuffPost and you have an Amazon Echo device, check out our daily flash briefing, 90 seconds with HuffPost, to hear the top stories of the day, every day. Thanks to all of you for listening.